You're listening to the Diplomats podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host Ankit Panda here from New York City, and this is Prashant Parameswaran from Washington D.C. Good to be back with you, Prashant. Uh, how's it going today? Good. How are you doing? It's been well. It's been a busy week here in New York. Uh, we've got the UN General Assembly's general debate just got started today with speeches mm-hmm. from the world leaders. But of course, there's been a lot of sideline diplomacy going on. Uh, and for listeners, that's really what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about uh, one development in. UNGA sideline development um, diplomacy that's already happened this week. On Monday, Singaporean Prime Minister uh, Lee Hsien Loong and U.S. President Donald Trump um, renewed an agreement to extend the U.S. use of military basing in Singapore um, for a another thirty year period, uh, or, or sorry, another fifteen year period through uh, twenty thirty five, um, and. After we discuss that, we'll also talk a little bit about the significance of an apparent um, reported meeting between the foreign ministers of the four quad countries. Uh, so that is slated to happen later this week. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about um, what the quad's really been up to and uh, where it might be going. So Prashant, I guess uh, the place to kick off is with a reflection on the U.S. relationship with Singapore. Uh, mm-hmm. so, th- so the two countries aren't allies, uh, but they've had a long-running military cooperation process. Of course, as we uh, both, I think, witnessed earlier this summer when we were in Singapore, um, a Singapore's position in the Indo-Pacific amid intensifying U.S.-China competition has gotten quite interesting. Uh, depending on who you talk to, there's a perception that um, Singapore has really been hedging its bets and reassessing its relationship with China. But I think uh, this week's event really shows that Singapore... Um, still sees the United States as its preeminent security partner uh, in the Indo-Pacific. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the history of um, the U.S.-Singapore relationship when it comes to these military matters and and how we should really make sense of this extension uh, of the um, basing access agreement? Yeah, I mean, I think it really is an interesting period to be reflecting on this renewal because when the original agreement was first signed, this was during the period of the end of the Cold War. Um, when the United States had um, suffered or experienced setbacks in where it was going to actually base a lot of its military presence. And most notably, it was the fact that uh, U.S. bases in the Philippines in Subic and Clark had been closed down rather unexpectedly. And the United States was looking for places to actually position, even if rotationally, some of its troops as well as its uh, military personnel, facilities and equipment. And Singapore uh, was one of the few countries that actually said, you know, we'd be actually willing to host this uh, presence to actually make up for that. And that's kind of the genesis of of this agreement. And it was renewed again uh, during the Bush administration when the United States was also looking to cement a lot of its alliances and partnerships uh, in Southeast Asia and the Asia Pacific. And now the renewal is coming as the Trump administration is embarking on its free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. So it really shows, I think, you know, the endurance of Singapore as a key U.S. security partner amid these various changes in the strategic landscape. Obviously, the the big development that this is going to actually be uh, viewed with respect to is, you know, the fact that, you know, the agreement was forged towards the end of one Cold War. And now we're talking about the start of a, you know, depending on which headlines you read, uh, the sensationalist headlines point to the beginning of a new U.S.-China Cold War. Um, and the fact that you have the Singaporeans willing to position themselves and still uh, actually support U.S. bases, personnel, 
Um, and, and obviously on a rotational basis, these are not permanent uh, U.S. bases by any stretch of the imagination, uh, nonetheless proves that, you know, Singapore is an enduring partner in that regard. Obviously, you know, we still don't really know much in terms of where this relationship is headed in the long run. There's a lot of uncertainties that we've talked about in the podcast before about the U.S. free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, a lot of uncertainties that the Singaporeans face on uh, the Trump administration's foreign policies, right? So when we were in the Singapore, uh, the Shangri-La dialogue in Singapore earlier this year, we heard some of that, including from Prime Minister Lee Hsien Long. So this is a really interesting window to view this broader geopolitical landscaping, including uh, the relationship between the United States and China. Yeah, I mean, um, on, on one hand, if you're the Singaporeans and you have an existing agreement for the United States to have rotational basing access, obviously, Pulling that back or modifying it in any way uh, sends a much stronger signal than renewal. In fact, I think the way mm-hmm. to read this, I think I think you're right. I mean, the way to read this is not, you know, Singapore taking sides at the start of a new Cold War or anything like that. This is really a, um, you know, a, a demonstration of continuity and Singapore continues, uh, continuing to see value in the relationship with the United States. Rather, the opposite move where Singapore would have felt compelled either by its relationship with China or prevailing geopolitical trends in the region to pull back, I think that would have been a, a, a much more significant development. Um, but, you know, I think I think it's also worth talking a little bit about sort of the, the domestic unease in Singapore and sort of the recalibration of um of the country's position i mean uh, just i think a little more than two years ago we were hearing singapore as sort of one of the more forward-leaning countries uh, within asean talking about the rules-based order um being quite critical of china for its activities in the south china sea singapore is not a claimant state in the south china sea of course but it is um, right there in the region uh, located very strategically between the malacca strait uh and and the broader waters uh, opening up into the south china sea and the gulf of thailand uh so uh, Singapore certainly has uh, stakes here, and uh, I think enabling a sustained U.S. Navy presence is, I think, a way for Singapore to ensure that its interests can be protected in the region. The country ben- um, mm-hmm. relies overwhelmingly, for example, on on the free flow of um, commercial maritime traffic through the South China Sea and the Malacca Strait, and having the U.S. Navy right there and having access to you know, basing facilities uh, in Singapore um, is is a way to make sure that um, its its capabilities um, are are in service of those ends. Obviously, Singapore does have a fairly robust naval capability of its own, especially given its size as a city state. Um, but I think you know there's something to be said for that relationship with the United States uh, and that very important partnership. And I guess another aspect is that you know Singapore has a very interesting relationship with the United States in terms of what it receives in um, in terms of uh, defense technology cooperation. Right, they're a partner on the F-35, for instance. Uh, mm-hmm. So they, um, I think, occupy a very interesting position uh, in that regard. But what's your sense of uh, you know the uh, the domestic conversation in Singapore um, over this issue and how it might have gone at all? I mean, was this sort of a no-brainer uh, for the Singaporeans? Yeah, I think you hit at a really big question with respect to the U.S.-Singapore relationship, which is that, you know, this renewal comes amid a period of domestic transition for Singapore itself. Um, it's a period where Lee Sin Long and, and the People's Action Party that has governed Singapore since its independence, you know, they're looking at a major transition away from the Lee family, and, and Lee Sin Long is supposed to hand over power to a successor in the next few years. Um, and so this relationship between the United States and Singapore, which was really forged um, amid Singapore's uh, founding Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew, 
um, it's really going to endure a, a big test, I think, in the coming years. So the big question forwarding to what you pointed out, which is, you know, this period of continuity that we've seen in U.S.-Singapore relations, uh, the big question is going to be when we see the next renewal of this agreement, which is going to be either in 2034 or 2035, you know, would Singapore be as willing to do this and will it be as easy of a process? And that obviously depends on a lot of factors. One factor is Singapore's domestic transition and domestic politics, but obviously there are other broader geopolitical factors, such as, you know, Singapore has been willing to be, you know, a ballast and a boost for the U.S. military presence in the region, but China has also been leaning on Singapore to provide more of a presence for it. It's been asking Singapore for bigger military exercises. In fact, during the Shangri-La dialogue, when you and I were there, you know, China and Singapore reached an agreement on on a new. Uh, defense agreement to promote bigger uh, defense exercises between China and Singapore. Obviously nothing, you know, nowhere near approximates what, you know, relationship Singapore has in the United States. But I think it's a it's a it's a good question to ask whether these broad geopolitical trends that we're seeing today, you know, will they actually represent more of continuity, you know, 15 or 30 years down the line or or will there be some aspect of change and how will Singapore really play in that broader balance? Yeah, and I think um you know, the Singaporeans, at least uh, in Southeast Asia, strike me as one of the countries that has a a diplomatic and strategic community that does some of the most uh, in-depth thinking about the long-term future of Asia. Um, they certainly mm -hmm. have a culture of that bureaucratically. Uh, at least a lot of the Singaporean officials I talk to, uh, you know, think very deeply about where Asia is going to be in 50 years. Because I think when you're a small city-state like Singapore, I mean, that's really how you compete and survive by being a, um, a more strategic player uh, and thinking more of the long-term than others. But yeah, I mean, as you absolutely noted, the the political continuity that Singapore has enjoyed um, under the under the Lee family, um, uh, first uh, Lee Kuan Yew and then uh, Lee Hsien Lung, um, I think that kind of um, continuity can no longer potentially be taken for granted, right? I mean, Singapore might have its own political headwinds to face in the future that might take the country in different directions. There's a domestic conversation about, uh, you know, the uh, the debate that other countries are dealing with about Chinese influence and the like. So I think many of these questions, you know, will come to bear. Uh, of course, we are a long way away from the next renewal of this agreement, um, and a lot could happen. But um, mm -hmm. at least for right now, it's it, it, it's certainly interesting. I mean, especially, you know, three years into uh, a United States led by Donald Trump, a lot of countries are questioning the value of the United States as an enduring partner. But I think Singapore has uh, calculated that the benefits now still uh, outweigh whatever perceived costs might be there. So um, I think uh, I think that's really where we are here. Um, mm -hmm. So let's move on uh, and talk a little bit about the Quad, which is a favorite topic of, I know, many of our readers at The Diplomat. Uh, it often gets seen as a coalition uh, to contain China or uh, even, you know, an alliance sometimes. It's neither of those things, really. It's a, it's a consultation among four like-minded countries. So who are the Quad? They are the United States, Japan, Australia, and India, uh, with the exception of the latter India. Um, the United States and Japan are allies. Um, the Australia and the United States are allies, and uh, Japan and Australia have been increasing their coordination. And there are sort of a broader set of trilateral interactions within the rubric of the Quad. So really, the Quad is about networking among these four uh, like-minded democratic partners with stakes in the Indo-Pacific region. And this week, it looks like they're going to have a foreign ministers level consultation, uh, which is going to be the highest level meeting uh, of the Quad uh, if it takes place since the initiative was effectively resumed in November 2017. And uh, why do I say resumed? The Quad had its origins 
in in the mid 2000s uh, in uh, Shinzo Abe, uh, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's first non-consecutive term as Prime Minister. It was sort of a Japanese initiative to bring um, then the uh, the leaders of the four countries uh, together. And at the time, uh, China reacted very negatively to the Quad, um, effectively viewing it as a containment coalition, and uh, um, issued a demarche, which sort of gave the Australians and eventually the Indians cold feet, and, and things pulled back. Obviously, um, like you noted in our conversation on Singapore, um, the Quad now convenes in a very different geopolitical time, with uh, U.S.-China competition obviously very much intensified. The Trump administration does show quite a bit of enthusiasm uh, toward all of these relationships in different ways. Um, but of course, you know, there, there is still very, you know, this is all very early days. Um, but so, um, you know, how do you read this, um, this meeting of, uh, the foreign ministers of the quad? I mean, if, and if, and when it does take place, um, I guess a few questions are, you know, what is the significance and, um, what, what kind of reaction might we expect from China in 2019, given the reaction we saw in uh, 2007? I think what you said is really important, which is that it's still kind of early days, right. With respect to this mechanism. So you know, it is an upgrade in terms of the convening power of what is arguably by far the, the kind of most talked about um, unilateral security configuration. But we, we still don't know a lot of, you know, these deeper questions about the quad, right? So, you know, how will it actually evolve? Um, what kind of tangible cooperation are we talking about? Um, and is, is this really more of a security or geopolitical uh, mechanism, or is it something that can actually function for you know, broader issues, whether it's people-to-people engagement, economic issues? And my, my sense is that there's still a lot of uh, things to be decided uh, before we can conclude on where this uh, actual configuration is headed. And I suspect that in the interim, as, as we often see, you know, we'll see a lot of scrutiny on, you know, things like, you know, jo- whether, you know, folks are making joint statements or separate statements, you know, what what is the extent of, you know, congruence between statements made by one country versus another country, what's being left out. And of course, as you noted correctly, um, you know, the response from other countries that are not part of the Quad, whether it's China or other countries that are seen as, you know, part of a potential sort of Quad plus uh, arrangement, whether it's with respect to exercises or other domains in the relationship. So I think overall, I mean, a lot of conversation about, um, you know, events that are happening with respect to the quad, but not a lot of certainty about what it actually is and what kind of tangible cooperation we might expect from it in, in the years to come. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I think one of the things I'm going to be looking for out of this meeting is um, deliverables, as always. I mean, the Quad, um, when we had the first working-level meeting, I believe it was in Manila in late uh, 2017, um, that working-level meeting resulted in each country issuing a short, you know, kind of boilerplate, one-paragraph uh, summary of the events. And, and that summary was interesting. Like, I did a comparison of the diplomats sort of looking at the language uh, each of the countries used, and it, it sort of gave you an idea of the relative areas of emphasis. Uh, India, for example was a lot less forthcoming uh, with uh, some of the commitments on the rules-based order front uh, compared to the other countries. So it's always interesting to sort of compare and contrast what each country is willing to say. Of course, I think if this quad foreign ministerial uh, results in something like a quadrilateral you know, joint statement on the Indo-Pacific, I mean, that would be, I think, a significant outcome. I'm not expecting that. Uh, we at least haven't seen any indicators from um, any of the countries that that is the envisaged outcome. I think it's simply a way to convey 
that the Quad Initiative remains energetic. Um, I think another thing I'll be looking for is to see if the Indians and the Australians in particular are about to reach a turning point here. Uh, India in particular, I think, is an interesting um, player to watch in the Quad now because, of course, we do have a a new um, Modi government, um, and, speci and specifically a new foreign minister. Uh, S.J. Shankar, uh, the new Indian external affairs minister, is known for being a particular proponent of the Quad and for Indian rapprochement with the United States more generally. So it's not surprising that we're seeing this first ministerial take place with uh, him at the helm. So um, it will be interesting to see if India, for example, um, next year will agree for Australia's participation in the Malabar exercises, if not as a former um, a, a formal quadrilateral partner, as a um, observer or perhaps even a, um, a temporary partner for one iteration of the exercise, potentially leading to the formal quadrilateralization. Uh, Malabar is about to kick off again with uh, the United States, Japan, and India. It was trilateralized in 2015. So um, mm -hmm. I, think, I think that's something to watch for again. Uh, the other thing I think... Um, you know, uh, depending on the statements that come out, it will be interesting to see uh, what issues the countries choose to pick up on on the, quote, you know, rules-based order, like-minded democracies front. Uh, I think, you know, on the more controversial end, um, it'd be amazing if they said anything about what's happening in Hong Kong, for example. I think that would be obviously hugely provocative to China if they did say that. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, on the other side, uh, we could maybe see something being said on the South China Sea. Uh, the Quad mm -hmm. hasn't, again, taken that on. Um, front and center, but they have called for the peaceful resolution of maritime disputes, at least some of the countries have. So putting that all together um, at this meeting, I think, could be an interesting outcome. But like I said, I mean, my expectations are pretty tempered. I think this is a a way to signal that the quad isn't dead, uh, that it's it's still uh, churning behind the wheel, um, you know, behind the scenes. The wheels are still turning. And uh, that I think there's more progress here uh, to be found if the countries are willing to put the work in and, uh, going forward. So Prashant, I was just wondering, um, what kind of uh, deliverables are you going to be looking for out of this meeting, potentially? No, I think I agree with you. I mean, the the joint statements would be very interesting to watch, um, particularly on a lot of the broader regional and global issues, because this is, um, after all, a grouping that claims to have um, a lot of uh, commitment to ideals and principles that are shared, not just on you know individual areas of collaboration. I think one of the interesting things to watch, though, would be, you know, one, uh, is there uh, any sort of sense of development on you know, beyond security cooperation and exercises, um, any developments on the economic uh, infrastructure and people-to-people -people domains um, that will help address the question of, you know, is the Quad primarily just a security or geopolitical arrangement, or is it something that's bro broadly about the order, which is a more comprehensive notion? And I think the other one that's really interesting to watch is, I mean, we've seen the various iterations of the Quad and arrangements convened on the sidelines of various forums. One of the interesting things is that this is happening on the sidelines of the UN, rather than something that's happening on the sidelines of ASEAN or, or Southeast Asia-focused uh, meetings. So I think from uh, sort of looking at it from an ASEAN perspective, you know, ASEAN's always seen itself as having a, a big role in terms of multilateralism and, and the regional order. Um, will we see future iterations of the Quad actually convene more alongside um, ASEAN meetings or, or UN meetings? Or is that going to be something that's more mixed depending on the um, the actual scheduling of the various ministers? So even though there's a lot of um, headlines that are made out of, you know, when meetings are held, sometimes it's often due to scheduling uh, rather than, you know, when these meetings are held and where they're held. But I think nonetheless, that will be a, something that the headlines will be looking for because a lot of the headlines on the quad 
have been compared relative to this notion of ASEAN centrality and whether the Quad actually cuts against that or whether it, it, it sort of is complementary with that. So I think that's the other big thing that I'd be looking for. Yeah, no, that's a that's actually a really interesting observation. I hadn't thought about that. Um, it's uh, it's notable because um, when we, I guess uh, it was Shangri-La 2018 when Mattis and Modi both spoke and mm -hmm. uh, the message that both of them had in their addresses when they got around to talking about uh, the Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, implicit in it being the Quad, uh, was that it wasn't a challenge to ASEAN centrality in an attempt to sort of reassure ASEAN leaders who did see these uh, arrangements as uh, as somewhat of a uh, alternative or a substitute for ASEAN. And I guess, I uh, I mean, doing this on the sidelines of the UN, if I had to guess, I would say it's it's scheduling in this case, but I think it, mm -hmm. it does have that advantage of showing that it's not necessarily competitive with ASEAN. Um, but yeah, I mean, we'll have to wait and see. Um, depending on the outcome, we may come back and uh, do another podcast on it. Uh, but Prashant, I think we'll uh, end it there today. Thanks a lot for joining me. Great. Good to be with you. Yeah, great to be with you. And uh, there's a lot more uh, coming up that I'm sure we'll be back to talk about soon, including uh, China's big uh, military parade on October 1st, which I'm very much looking forward to. Uh, we'll be able to talk a little bit about uh, what we see that day and what that tells us about the trajectory of the Chinese military. Um, but in the meantime, uh, for listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up with future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review on either iTunes, Google Play, uh, TuneIn, Spotify, any number of podcast providers, please go ahead and do so. It really helps get the word out about the show. And if you have any suggestions for us for future episodes, please just shoot either me or Prashant an email uh, or a Twitter DM, and we'll be very happy to consider it for a future episode inclusion. Uh, so thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.